Well, uh, it's been um, quite a, a challenge, not so much from the campaign standpoint, but I've been, since the governor declared a stay-at-home, I've actually been physically staying at home since that declaration. And so I took it upon myself to start calling my district. March 16th, actually, I began calling uh, around the district just to do wellness checks and check in on people and make sure that they were clear on what the stay-at-home meant and kind of just being open to what their concerns and questions were. And as the weeks proceeded, I stressed a little because I was hearing over and over and over uh, the impact this was having on our families, as well as our elderly. I have a, a district that is a very poor district, but it also has a lot of retirees in the district. And then, of course, a lot of single mothers and some single fathers as well. The single mothers and single parents oftentimes work two or three jobs part-time just to make ends meet. So I had to intervene on several occasions, many occasions actually, to try to get food on the table and supplies to homes with mothers with um, uh, disabilities and three and four and five children at home. So I, I welcomed being able to communicate directly with my constituents during this very challenging time period. I welcomed being able to really step in and assist in as many ways as I could, but it also shed light on the tremendous amount of need um, that exists. And more importantly, it shed light on many issues that we have been, I as a state representative and my colleagues have been uh, trying to address for many years now, which we successfully did to a large extent. I wasn't quite happy with it, but we did pass a minimum wage increase. The wages came up as a major issue because people are working still two, three jobs. And then, of course, I heard from single moms that worked in schools and then part-time jobs otherwise and were concerned because they weren't sure whether they ha would have jobs to come back to, but more importantly, some school workers were being told that they um, could take their, their family leave or their personal leave and other kinds of leave, but weren't quite sure what their protections would be uh, when they returned. And so that shed light a lot on why it's so important to have paid family medical leave. You know, so it, it raised a lot of, a lot of the issues that we've been right on target as a Democratic House caucus in addressing, it really hit home because it confirmed and reaffirmed the fact that we have a lot of business to take care of, Susan. And so I continue to reach out and hear a story after story, and that just setting in motion what I have to continue to work on in my district. So thank you for asking. I haven't had any tragic cases to report or any active cases in the phone calls that I've received, although in my zip code, which is 87121, we have the second highest contagious rate going on right now. So that concerns me. So I continue to have contact with the constituents on a regular basis. So that's what my time has been taken up with. So it's sort of taken over your campaign mode. Absolutely. But, you know, for me, um, this is the reason why I'm a state rep and why I campaign. Not that I'm merging the two necessarily, but from a campaign standpoint, it just reaffirms how important it is to get myself reelected 
and to continue with a proven track record and experience and the skills and the knowledge that I've attained in the last eight years in the legislature. Uh, it's not the time anywhere in the state unless it's an open race to actually replace a proven track record and experience with newcomers or on-the-job training. So it's just to actually reinforce the fact that I need to keep going. And my campaign is active. We are, you know, reaching out in many different ways that we have not been used to reaching out, such as increasing our social media presence, of course. And I've always done mailers, and I've always done signs, and I've always done door knocking, and I've always done phone calls. So what we've done, the only thing that's not in place out of all of those is the door knocking right now. So Mm -hmm. phone calling is going strong. Everything else is going pretty strong. So I feel pretty confident that having maintained good relationships over the past, my tenure of eight years, will show itself in the the get out the vote. The challenge right now is informing everybody to absentee ballot, to submit their application, update their voter registration. So we are on a current um, reach to our constituencies right now, emphasizing the what I call the three magic steps of <laughs> getting ready, which is the updating of your voter registration, applying for your absentee ballot. Right now is a good time to be applying for it, and then to be looking out for it May 5th when it comes, and then filling it out and returning it, and then, of course, be looking out for your ballot. So I've I've kind of been trying to do that kind of outreach right now. And it's getting some really good reception. Are you feeling that because of the perceived need for paid family leave or this kind of evident need that the legislature will be sort of raring to go with that legislation when it's back in session? Yes. I think it's an imperative now. It's become not only evident in our experiences through this crisis. It was evident before, but of course it's even more so now because protecting a person's job and longevity and benefits and everything that goes with it becomes even more important because now that we're experiencing firsthand, it's having a devastating effect on our families. So for me, it's always been something that's been on the front burner, which is why, you know, I proudly sponsored and uh, with primary uh, other representative Chandler joined me in the House Bill 16 that I sponsored, and then we ended up merging our efforts together, and I hope to continue on that path. That's what I, my full expectation is to continue on that path. And I think that it would be absolutely astounding to me if we received any type of significant pushback or opposition pay family leave, I think it becomes imperative on us now to craft and frame a policy that would be satisfactory for the employer. However, my position has always been that the employee is of utmost and paramount importance to us. So we have to first secure the position for the employee to make sure that they are secure in their benefits and then supplement that with positioning the employer from a responsible position as well. But principal should be the employee always in any paid family medical leave policy. It may be that the state could take over more of the, the mechanics of it and make it so that 
it's the least trouble for the employer. I think that's something that employers may sort of worry about, especially well, as they're getting back to work and trying to get things moving again. Well, and the other side to that, I think a third party in the state should be the responsible party in oversight. And if there's a management capacity for the state by a separate fund, uh, which is where we ended up in the discussions and why it is that we wanted to go through with uh, House Memorial 333 and study this further, was that in our discussions in committee and as the bills were moving themselves through, we heard over and over again and we reached out to Department of Workforce Solutions at the time a little bit prematurely because our secretary, as all the secretaries were new in their positions and they were still getting acclimated to the bureaucracy that, that they inherited and then trying to set up the new mechanics of, of administering programs under a different administration. So we were cognizant of all of that. I think, yes, the, the state could be in that position, but we have to tread very carefully because we don't want to defer the responsibility to the state away from the employer. I think the employer still has the ultimate responsibility in responding to the employee and, and it being in the package of benefits. However, recognizing that today looks a lot different than it did yesterday, given the crisis, and that's pushed us into an arena where now we have to reconsider what we had on the table and then consider now new factors, which means that our economy is going to have to regroup our economy is going to have to reestablish itself, and our small businesses have to be given a lift. So I think that's where the state can come in and actually play a larger role in helping mitigate through that process. I'm hoping that that's larger employers during this crisis are acting responsibly with those loans and grants that they're receiving and actually setting up the structures and benefit packages and return to work incentives and everything that goes with creating a new environment, I hope they're putting it in because I, what I fear is New Mexico has always been, we've always been dependent on either the state or the federal government or oil and gas or limited revenue streams. And so consequently, we've created this quote-unquote dependency mode on a state and the state has not been able to uh, financially or fiscally or even revenue-wise been able to grow and regrow substantially to the point where it can handle dependency so that every time we go into a crisis, we sink further and further, and it takes us more time and energy and effort to come out of that crisis. So I want to be careful that we don't create a dependency on the state if it's not necessary to do so, but that we do balance the state in this discussion and offer the state as perhaps a, a third eye. In the academic field, we, we always look at a third eye as being the balance and offering the medium and the least obstructive way in which to structure something so that it's successful for all parties involved. And it's also a factor that we've used in labor when you're negotiating contracts and collective bargaining, which I've been very much a part of in all my career. And that is that, you know, sometimes you do need to put that third eye in there, but not necessarily to off-balance either of the two responsible parties.
but to ensure okay. that the oversight's in place. And do you feel, do you sense a sort of willingness or energy that's going towards that role of the state? I do. I think at the beginning, Secretary McCamley was both wholeheartedly interested in pursuing this avenue, and he saw that he could absolutely be a resource. However, again, he's had to step back because of the many limitations and not being careful not to overburden his his responsibilities so early on. But I think Workforce Solutions is probably the the happy median, the department that would be the logical place to place this uh, oversight, you know, management type capacity of oversight. Right now, I think that there's a willingness absolutely on his part, but also keep in mind that this falls in the category of labor laws. So there's also, you know, attorney generals and others that will provide those kinds of employment protections once they're instituted. So I think, yes, I think under this new administration, under our new governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, I see a lot of hope and I see a lot of willingness on the part of her secretary to cooperate with the legislators in our attempt to create the necessary structural change that will place our employees in a position of sustainable employment, but also in a place where they can choose the careers of their choice and not be forced into employment situations because they need to supplement one job with two or three or because they're not earning enough or because they don't have the benefits. So, mm-hmm. yes, I think we're going to go in a little bit more powerful from from the experience we're going through and hopefully a lot more dedicated to making sure that we do pass pay family medical leave for the state of New Mexico. The state has to take the lead. We can't let local governments. In this case, the state has to demonstrate the leadership in passing the law. Okay. Let's talk about some other issues. And, of course, a big one is choice. And that has been sort of influenced a little bit by this crisis that we're in with some states trying to take advantage of it. Yes, I think it's outrageous. I've been following what Texas has attempted to do in the blocks, and I applaud all of the advocates, ACLU, and all of the advocates that have stepped forward to contest Texas's move in other states. I think it's shameful on the part of the Trump administration and the states that have taken advantage of trying to set us back in so many different ways. And this is the the choice and abortion discussion are, are is a perfect example of how they're taking advantage of a critical life-threatening situation in order to place their partisan politics in the forefront. And I've always, I was vice chair for many years of consumer public affairs for our legislature and very proud of our hold the line position when it came to these types of proposals to try to stop women from being able to control the choices they make for their own bodies. And I firmly believe that women fully control those choices. And these discussions don't have any place in government to begin with. There are choices that are between the woman, her family, her faith, her medical provider, and that's it, and should not even be entertained in any hall of government. And so, although I'm no longer vice chair of consumer and public affairs, I'm a very strong Catholic for choice. 
and very strong on the reproductive rights of women. And so I will be the first in line to stand and oppose any efforts on the part of anyone to try to infringe on those rights. And I hope to see if we could revise or do away with the our antiquated 1969 law in New Mexico. So I'm looking forward to to voting for that again and and supporting that. And I also want to note that, you know, I go back a long time in my activism, and I was part of the Roe versus Wade in early 1970s all the way up to its passage. And I did so at a time when I was young, of course. I was a student at the university. I was involved in the Chicano movement. And I've been involved in social movements my entire life, social labor movements. And it it goes without saying that um, there's a reason why we have constitutional rights and protections in place. And this was one that was a long, hard-fought battle and one that we won. And it's no time to be reversing those constitutional protections at this point. And so I just feel very strongly the choice in this matter is of, of also of paramount importance to women. And so um, I, I, I just cringe and get very upset when I do see these types of efforts to take advantage uh, and also to reverse. I know personally many students that lost their lives during the student rights movement in protesting the Vietnam War and in supporting Roe versus Wade and many other social issues of the late 60s and early 70s. They actually lost their lives in attempting to support, defend, and protect, and make sure that laws were enacted for these constitutional protections. And so it uh, it's painful to me, and I, I get very upset uh, because those of us that lived through that are still alive. We know what history was then, and we've seen it and we're still committed. And so with every bit of energy that I have in me for the remainder of my life, and as I continue to raise my my grandsons, help raise my my small grandsons, I want to demonstrate to them, as I did to my two sons, how best to protect those rights. You mentioned being uh, Vice Chair of Consumer and Public Affairs. Let's talk a little bit about the committee work that you've done, because I think you um, are a member or advisory on a number of different interim committees. Yes. I'm happy to currently chair the Behavioral Health Committee, which is part of the Health and Human Services uh, larger committee. And I also sit on the Legislative Education Study Group Committee. I think Representative Tomas Salazar and I were the only representatives on that committee that actually represent higher education. I'm a UNM part-time adjunct professor and also close to completing my PhD. So I am very happy to serve on that committee because I think that we need a stronger voice for higher ed and the direction higher ed should be going and the role that should be playing in terms of public ed. I think there's a direct correlation and pathway that we should be strengthening between uh, early childhood elementary, middle, high school, and pathway on to higher ed, if that's the choice of the student. And so there should be clear ways in which to connect that relationship. In behavioral health, I was happy to accept the chair of that position because there were several things that motivated 
my interest. I was um, when I first started my career, I was a clinical social worker, and I dealt with my charge were children that came from abusive homes, and nine times out of ten, the abuse was occurring because of either mental or behavioral health issues that were related to parents, their experiences, and their growing up. And so even early on in my career, I saw that there was a tremendous need to address mental health and behavioral health as part of health, overall health and well-being of an individual, and that it should be handled holistically in that manner. And so this this last interim session, we, we had some really good discussions about those relationships, and we highlighted the good programs around the state, in particular our Bernalillo County, who's taken the forefront in the state in terms of how it's addressing mental and behavioral health. And then we, we entertained the direct correlations also between education and good mental and behavioral health. So being on Health and Human Services, Behavioral Health, Education Study Committee, we're all directly related. Then the other part of my involvement has been the Economic and Rural Development Committee, the New Mexico Finance Authority, and because I'm also a certified community economic planner and developer. That's my college preparation and certification and career path that I ended up taking after beginning as a social worker. And so that's a very important correlation also. There's a direct link between education and economic development. They work hand in hand. We want our young people to look forward to viable careers of their choice, but we have to provide a good, successful education for them. And then we need to have a prepared workforce, either by career or skill. And so there's there's just a tremendous amount of interrelationships between those paths, and so I'm happy to sit on those committees and offer my 45-plus years experience in the field. In the New Mexico Financing Authority, as a planner and developer, I wore the hat of CEO, CFO, Executive Director of Nonprofit Organizations, and putting together community development projects that were self-empowering for the community and community-owned forced us to have to be trained and experienced in putting together financing packages, preparing them and presenting them to large banks and financing institutions, including the Federal Reserve Bank uh, groupings. And so that knowledge um, helps me a great deal in understanding how our financing mechanisms can be even more helpful outside of the normal ways in which businesses tap into them, but they can also be very helpful for nonprofits and for nonprofits doing community economic development. And community economic development also includes child care entities. It also includes things that we're not used to thinking about, independent contractors and how they do business with state government. So those are the kinds of tidbits that, that I bring to the table, and I'm often offering that type of knowledge and experience. And it, it has worked because our New Mexico Finance Authority has actually opened up and actually relaxed some of the rules and opened up more access to local communities working with nonprofits. And so I'm happy that that has been a good thing. And Indian Affairs is dear to my heart. I am tribal. I come from southern New Mexico. I am a member of the Pito Manzotiwa Pueblo tribe from Las Cruces, New Mexico, and that 
tribe is known as one of the larger pre-Anasazi parental tribes of the state of New Mexico and this entire region. And so I have deep roots. We stopped counting at 22 generations here in the state of New Mexico. So I wear the proud hat of serving on that Indian Affairs Committee because, again, it's, it's my heritage and this is my tradition. And I want to make sure that our Native tribes, our Native American tribes, um, are all held to the highest esteem in our state. And we help try to mitigate through a history of disparities that have been afforded our Latino and, and Native American communities. So, so um, those are just a mention. I think I've messed out a couple more committees. You sound a little spread a little thin. Well, actually, I go to almost every single one of them. Early on when I became a legislator, I was not able to dedicate as much time because I was caring for my then 94, 95-year-old father and my mother who had passed away early, earlier. And so I was the primary caretaker. I didn't volunteer for a whole lot the first couple of years, four years maybe. But when my father passed on and I felt my grieving had passed, I felt I had the time and energy. I'm retired from my career, not retired from life, far from it. Mm -hmm. But um, I did let the speaker know that I had a little bit of time. And so I got placed on a lot of committees. And I've actually been very dedicated. People know me as, you know, doing my research and studying. And and so it's just part of me. It's the way I've been all my life. Uh, And so I only will serve in the capacity that knowing that I can be able to be of service. And so I I think I've got a pretty good track record. So, But, you know, I I have to also balance that and make sure that my health is taken care of and, you know, I eat right, nutrition right, exercise. So I try to do all of that. I don't know what it would be like, uh, Susan, to, quote, unquote, be retired. I really really (laughs) wouldn't know know what to do with that. (laughs) Well, I appreciate your taking some time and, and sharing your thoughts with us. I, I really thank you for inviting me, and any time that I can be of any help to address anything, to make contributions, um, please always feel free to call upon me. Okay. Well, thank you. And I've been thank talking you. to Patricia Roybal Caballero, who is running to retain her seat.